0: We should you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, coming verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself... Bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Do you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are the one who reveals to us the mind of God, you are the one who illumines the scriptures, and so this morning we ask that you would do exactly that. Apart from your work of making your word come alive to our ears and mind and eyes and heart, we will waste our time this morning. So Holy Spirit, speak. Speak to your word. Speak into our hearts and change us for your glory. Amen. Kazuo Ishiguro's masterful novel, The Remains of the Day, won the Booker Prize and was later turned into a film nominated for some eight Academy Awards. The book is about a British butler named Stevens, and he serves as the first-person narrator for this book. One of the storylines which runs through the book is Stevens recounting his service to great Lord Darlington in one of those great British houses. And as he recounts his his time with Lord Darlington and many of his his Experiences in that house, he recounts what it is to be a truly great butler. And he's constantly wrestling, what does it mean to be a really world class butler? And he seems to settle on this fact that it is an issue of dignity, that it must include a constant attitude of refined dignity, especially under stressful situations. The difficulty, though, is that Stephen's obsession with dignity actually causes him to lose or miss out on or not experience good, healthy feelings and desires. He's so concerned with his dignity and with the perfection of his duties that when his father takes ill, he essentially ignores him. He has somebody else go sit with his father as he takes his last breaths and dies. Later in the book, Stephen goes on a trip, and While he's on this trip, he's recounting, you know, just his his desire for perfection and how he's getting older now and he started to mess up in his duties and there's a man who engages with him and says, your attitude is all wrong. You keep looking back all the time and you're bound to get depressed if you do that. He says, look, so neither, neither of us are in the first flush of youth, but you've got to keep looking forward. You've got to enjoy yourself after all the evening is the best part of the day. Later, Stevens is thinking through the man's words, and he says this. Perhaps then there is something to his advice, that I should cease looking back so much, and I should adopt a more positive outlook and try to make the best of what remains of the day. After all, what can we ever gain in forever looking back and blaming ourselves if our lives have not turned out quite as we might have wished? You see, the reader is left to ponder. What about me? Do I constantly find myself looking back trying to relive the past, dwelling in, mourning over decisions, choices, failures? In one sense, the only way to answer that question is to acknowledge that each of us build our lives on something. We each define success and happiness in a certain way. Perhaps you, like Stevens, define the good life in a way which leads you to look back quite often. You find yourself thinking about past mistakes and they weigh you down. I'll tell you that's certainly an enduring struggle in my own life, having to fight against those thoughts. Well, throughout Romans 7 and 8, Paul contrasts two ways of living, living in the flesh or living in the spirit. And last week, Matt opened the sermon by by reminding us that there's actually two ways of living in the flesh, that for some, living in the flesh looks like breaking all of the rules, And defining the good life for yourself, for whatever you choose it to be. Whereas for others, trying to keep all the rules, they define their good life. They define success by their ability to be perfect in all of those rules. Each and every one of us has a tendency towards one or the other. We tend to feel like the best version of ourselves when we cast off all restraints or when we follow each and every rule like Stevens, the butler. In the first section of Romans 8 we saw last week, Paul lays out that for those who have been made alive by the Spirit, those who have been enabled to walk in this new life in the Spirit, that they have a new aim. They are not bound by the past. They have a new way of measuring what the good life is. Because the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in them. Paul then draws a conclusion for His whole argument running from verses 1 through 11 in verses 12 and 13. And these verses hinge and they connect the first 11 verses with our passage today. So look at verse 12 and 13 with me again. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live those who've been made alive, they're no longer debtors. They're no longer slaves to the flesh. Instead, by the Spirit, they're able to put to death those deeds of the flesh. To use Stephen's illustration, those made alive in the Spirit have been able to be freed from their past, to truly enjoy the remains of the day, the remains of their lives, in a sense. And last week, Matt mentioned this strong language of putting to death. Well, that's so important to remember because Paul is going to restate this idea of putting to death the deeds of the flesh in different language. And that brings us to our first point in this message, the spirit of adoption. And you'll see, I believe, up there, yes. The first point is led and adopted in verse 14, 15, then assurance by the spirit and sons and heirs with Christ. So the first point, led and adopted. Look at verse 14 and 15 again. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. But that four there is giving you an explanation. You might read it since all who are led by the Spirit. So he's restating verse 13. Since all of you who are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, since those of you who mortify, since you are led by the Spirit. He's equating those two things. Being led by the Spirit is putting to death the deeds of the Spirit. So, the first thing must be clear. It will not do to say that someone is led by the Spirit if they continue in unrepentant sin. Someone who fails to mortify, to put to death the deeds of the flesh, is not led by the Spirit. Now, as we've said throughout this whole series, if you're a Christian, then you have the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, you have been adopted, this text says. You have been spiritually severed from your old life situation and your old spiritual deaths. They've been canceled, and you're a whole new person. And then, again, you get to enjoy the remains of the day in that sense. But for some of you, this this passage might be a little troubling because it says... This adoption brings us into God's family and allows you to cry out, Abba, Father. But some of you, if I imagine in a room this size, maybe you did not have the best father. As a matter of fact, some of you might be anxious over that very thought. There's a website talking about just the plague of fatherlessness in our day, fatherhood.org. It shares important statistics about absentee fathers. In America, more than one in four children live without a father in the home. And consequently, there's a father factor, they say, in nearly all of society's ills. When a child is raised with the absent father, their children are seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. Some four times more likely greater risk of poverty. Twice as likely to drop out of high school. More likely to have behavioral problems, to face abuse and neglect. More likely to abuse drugs and alcohol, to commit crime and even go to prison. So maybe you had one of those types of fathers who wasn't there. And the idea of God as your father is upsetting or troubling or difficult. Or maybe your father was there, but maybe he was a bit like my father. was. That if he wasn't sober, I would have rather him been gone. That when he was there and he wasn't sober, it was a horrible thing to be around. See, imagine a room this size, many of you probably had wonderful fathers who you look up to and honor and are so thankful for. And yet I imagine others have probably experienced quite a bit of hardships and troubles. But I hope to show you that God's fatherhood is of a whole different sort. And here's why. Did you know what Paul, Paul said? He said he clarifies God's fatherhood. He says, we get to call him Abba, Father. The Abba is the Aramaic word for Father. And he immediately translates it, because his Greek readers would have said, Abba, what what does that mean? Well, it means father. Now, some have pushed this, I'd say, too far, and maybe you've heard it said, where Abba is like daddy. And I would just say, as they continue to do studies on this word, it's not a helpful picture at all. It might mean dear father, or something like that. Instead, the reason why Paul uses this word Abba at all, why he even throws this Aramaic word in front of his audience... I would say is because this is what Jesus said to the Father. Jesus in Mark 14, 36 said, Abba, Father, when he prayed. What this means is that adopted sons and daughters of God, we now have the same access to the Father that Jesus had. As God is a Father to Jesus, he is to us. He's never absent. He he always longs to be with us. He sent his son to die, to be with us, and his spirit to indwell us, the very presence of God. So you have to remember, in in their day, access to God was a very different thing than we think of it today. We're just so used to, we gather and God is in our midst, but that was not the way it was in their day. To, To access God in the Jewish world was built around a temple, and that temple had an outer court and an inner court. It had a holy place and a thick veil that blocked you off from the holy of holy place where God's presence dwelt. And no one dared go into the holy of holies unless you happened to be the high priest. And it just so happened that it was the one day a year, the day of atonement, where he got to walk in with an offering. That was it. The presence of God was a radically separate thing. So when Jesus prays, Abba, Father, and Paul prays, it says that we get to pray just like Jesus, Abba, Father. We get to be in his presence. We get to be in his midst. We get to experience him. With the coming of Jesus, everything changes. Because he, as we sang, our God is the unchanging God. That means he will never fail. His unchangeableness means that he never has a bad day and takes it out on you. Because he's perfect in love, he will never fail to love and forgive and grant mercy to all those who repent. Because he's a God of perfect justice, his wrath and punishment are never undeserved. His correction of his children is always done in a spirit of restoration, of reconciliation. So see, unlike some earthly fathers whose presence you may want to avoid at all cost... It specifically says that this adoption leads us not back into slavery and fear, but rather it's the adoption of sons. This is a word that only Paul uses in the New Testament, and it would have fired the imaginations of the first readers, because the adoption was a Roman thing. It was a Greek thing. When, when a Roman person, when a Roman parent adopted a son, there was a number of things that came with it. First, an adopted son was taken out of his previous situation and placed into an entirely new one, a new relationship with his adopting father and family. The adopted son started a new life, so much so that all of his old debts were canceled. The adopted son was considered no less important than the biological children. And an adopted son experienced a change of status, which came with a new name. Given to him by his adopted father. See, for those of you old enough to remember the original Ben Hur and not the horrendous excuse of a remake, yes, I'm opinionated on that. See, in that culture, you remember Ben Hur was adopted. He received the signet ring. He got the name, he got the inheritance, he got everything. He was adopted. That's what would the first readers would have realized. Oh, we are adopted. We get the father's ring. We get the father's name. We get his inheritance see that's what the first audience would have heard so paul says when you're adopted by this father you're brought in you have access you get to call him abba he gives you a new name all your old debts have been canceled you are not a second-rate child no you're a son daughter of the king now in fact theologians have taught about this Holy Spirit and union with Christ is the way they talk about our salvation, and adoption is one part of that union with Christ. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said that this whole element of union with Christ was like joining the dance of the Trinity. Now, he he called it a dance of the Trinity because in the the Trinity, you have the one being of God, eternally existent in three persons, a Father, Son, and Spirit. And the way this works is that they're always other-focused, So the Father is constantly, eternally dancing around, as it were, the Son and the Spirit. The Father never says, hey, check out what I did. He's always saying, oh, look at the Son. Oh, look at the Spirit. Oh, look at the Son. And the Son, in turn, is always dancing around the Father and the Spirit. No, look at the Father. No, look at the Spirit. And the Spirit, dancing, always pointing, reflecting, pushing back the glory to the Father and the Son. And when we are adopted, what it's saying is, we're brought into the dance. But also, like we sang, That we're bent in, as Luther said. That our sin causes us to be inward. We, We turn in. We bend in. But the dance requires us to be called outward. So we're called in to adopt. We're called in as adopted sons and daughters of the king. And we look up and out so we can live and say, oh, look at the father. Oh, look at the son. Oh, look at the spirit. That is what is happening here. Being called in as adopted children of the king. Now, This is a glorious reality, but it begs the question, how can I know for sure that I've been adopted by God? I didn't didn't get a signet ring literally, so how do I know? Well, that takes us to our next point, assurance by the Spirit. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The theologians argue, what's the main idea of Romans 8? And one of the central themes has to be assurance of salvation. that just runs through this whole chapter. And it comes to its, its head, as it were. It comes to the, the, the real front of the argument starting in that verse 12 and 13 and moving down through the rest of the chapter. So the first way you know that you're an adopted child of God... It's if you're fighting sin. That's what it said. As Matt said last week, it's the Holy Spirit who strengthens you to fight sin, to mortify, to put to death. So that began last week. And now Paul gives us a second reason in verse 16. The way you know, the way you're assured is not because you've got a ring, but because the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. One commentator put it this way. The Holy Spirit is not only instrumental in making us God's children. He also makes us aware that we are God's children. Which is to say that if you are able to cry out, Abba, Father. If you're able to read the Bible and you see God, not as a far off, distant deity, but as a father who loves you, who has adopted you. Then that is a work of the Spirit. Then the Spirit has brought you into the family. And he is bearing witness with your spirit. Now, here's another problem, though. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I have plenty of people who have felt like God was their father for quite a long time. And yet they ultimately turned away from God. How does this assurance really assure us? What does that look like? Well, notice the logic of the passage. Verse 16, again, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children, and if children, heirs provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Provided. It's, it's a conditional clause. It's, it's saying that our sonship, our being in heir, is conditioned upon suffering. Now, the moment you say that, some eyebrows get raised, or if you can't raise eyebrows, maybe you just raise your whole set of brows, I don't know. But but this brings some questions. Well, wait a minute, what's going on? And the reason why for us Protestants, why this raises some ire or some consternation is because the entire Reformation was based on this idea that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to which we say yes and amen. But see, when the Reformers said you are saved by grace through faith their faith was never alone faith always worked itself out in the believer's life and the way it worked itself out was in perseverance was in continuing to repent and believe which brings a second reason why sometimes this idea of wait a minute salvation has a, has a has a perseverance element to it the second reason why for some of us this raises some question is because friends we have bought into what is very popular with this idea That if you pray a prayer, you're a Christian. Many have followed in the wake. There's a long lineage of this. Going back to Charles Finney and before, and Billy Sunday, the baseball player, who said he was so efficient as an evangelist, he saved people for the average cost of $2.50 a soul because of his renting of equipment and the sawdust trail. And later even Billy Graham, America's pastor, who oftentimes... Whether intentionally or not, it sounded as though salvation was essentially a matter of praying a prayer and being brought in. But I just want to say, friends, that is just not biblical. The Bible sees salvation as a work of the Spirit of God acting upon spiritually dead people, making them alive in Christ. This is what we saw last week. Look at back at verse 7 and 8 with me. Romans 8, 7 and 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's a category of inability. It cannot be done. You cannot please God in the flesh. Well, how do you go from being in the flesh to being in the spirit? Well, we saw the Holy Spirit makes us alive, unites us to Christ. See, just as Nicodemus came to Jesus in John 3... Jesus told Nicodemus, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. So too. We cannot, we are not saved, we are not adopted children of the king if we don't persevere, if we don't continue on and suffer. Salvation is not about a prayer. It's about the Holy Spirit's work of granting us life and giving us faith. Now, make no mistake... All true Christians will respond to the Spirit's work with repentance and faith. That's what our passage is saying. That all those Spirit-regenerated people will persevere. All those who genuinely hear the gospel and repent are kept by God because the Holy Spirit adopted us. And God's adoption never fails. Real faith sticks. And true Christians who've been regenerated and adopted by the Spirit will finish the race. Oh, they will stumble They might be dragged across the finish line by the Holy Spirit, but they will finish the race. So Christian friend, if you're stumbling toward Jesus, though you fall and fail, and we all fall and fail in many ways, if you continue pressing on in repentance and confession of sin and belief, then that is proof that the Holy Spirit is testifying with your spirit. However, if you're not persevering through suffering, If you're not persevering in repentance and faith, then the New Testament offers you no assurance. It's a strong word, but that is precisely what John says in 1 John 2 18 and 19. They went out from us, proving that they were not of us. If they really had been of us, they would have continued with us. Since true faith endures, all Christians are called to press on, to persevere. Oh, with the Holy Spirit's help, make no mistake. But this is the pattern. We suffer before the glory, just as Christ did. He, the true Son, bore the cross before he wore the crown. That's what Hebrews 5, 8 means. When it says that the Son learned obedience through what he suffered, and that having been made perfect, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Friends, As those who are united to Christ, we are called to suffer, and through that suffering to enter into glory. And it is this idea of suffering which will actually be taken up at length in next week's passage, so we're not going to press on on that point. So the first way you know you're a Christian, the first piece of assurance is that you're fighting sin. The second is that the Spirit bears witness with your spirit. And the third is that the Spirit bears witness not only with your spirit, but with our spirits, with The church's spirit, as it were, corporately, which is why we are so intent on membership in the local church. Jonathan Lehman's little book, you can get it in the old chapel, Church Membership, he writes this, membership is a group of Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to officially affirm and oversee one another's membership in Jesus Christ, or we might say in this text, to oversee our adoption into Jesus Christ. In other words, the New Testament, again, has no concept of a Christian who is not an active church member. To be a Christian is to be made alive, to be united with Christ, adopted into his family, and to be united with each other. It works itself out in the local church. It's this powerful, my Christian walk is dependent on you, members of the gathering church. My growth as a Christian is dependent upon you. My theology professor says this to every new member they bring into their church. Bring your A game because my growth as a Christian is dependent upon you, upon you growing, upon you continuing and pressing on in the faith. See, if you're a regular attender of the gathering church and you have not committed to membership, I want to exhort you to commit. Your growth as a Christian is bound up with who you bind yourself to. We are united to Christ, and there's no category in the New Testament for being united to Christ and not to a local body of believers in the local church. So if you have questions of what that would look like, please come and talk to us. We'd love to give you more information. But it has been well said that you do not join a church, you submit to it, because the church is submitted to Christ. He is the head and we are the body as we have seen in our study of the Spirit, who unites us to him. So, to recap the passage so far, all those led by the Spirit have been adopted into God's family as heirs, provided that they press on and endure, even enduring suffering. But did you notice how the language switches between the first two verses and the second two? Did you catch it? It said in verses 14 and 15, sons. But then in verse 16 and 17, it changes to children. What's going on there? Let's reread the whole passage to get the flow. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is our third point. Sons and heirs with Christ. So we see the switch to children language. Clearly this is not a male-female thing. Because children is all-inclusive. So why does he start with sons? Why would he make that switch? It's very clear once you read it again and see it, you're like, oh yeah, he totally switches. Why does he do that? Well, here's the answer. Because son and sonship is a category that ties your entire Bible together. I would go so far as to say if you don't have a working understanding of sonship language in the Bible, there are many parts of the Bible that just simply will not make sense. They will be opaque to you. So because that is the case, I want to run through and trace out this theme of sonship just a little bit for you. So God created Adam and Eve, and he told Adam, you need to beat back anything from coming into the garden. You need to protect it. And Adam abdicated his role. He didn't do it. And so the serpent gets into the garden and tempts Eve. And Eve then gives to Adam, and they fall. And in Genesis 3.15, we get the curse. But in that curse, there's also a promise. And it says that one day you'll have a son, and that son will crush the serpent's head. Now, you turn the page, and chapter 4 begins like this. Adam knew his wife, and she gave birth to a son. The first readers would have been like, is this the son? Is this the son of promise? Which you quickly learn is, no, not the case. Because it's Cain. And Cain murders his brother over petty jealousy. This is certainly no son of promise. So they have another son, Seth. But the line just keeps going. And you trace the lines. That's why Genesis has all that language. And he begat, and he begat, and he begat. Those lists aren't meant to bore you. They're meant to excite you. Say, oh, because every time someone was born, it was, is this the son? Until finally, it gets so bad that Adam and Eve and Cain's sins just multiply. So that the thought of their heart, every thought of their heart was continually on evil. And so God brings the flood, saving only Noah and his three sons. And within just a couple generations after the flood, a reboot, if you will, we're right back to where we were before, in utter chaos. And so it becomes really clear, the only way this son can come is with divine intervention. Is if God intercedes and sends a particular son. And so he chooses Abram, and he calls Abram, and he says, through you will come this promised son. But there was this one problem. Abram and Sarai Sarai were old, and they had no kids. And so God does the only logical thing, and he renames him from Abram, exalted father, to Abraham, father of a multitude. And he changes Sarai's name of my princess to Sarah, a mother of nations and kings. Then God gives them a son, Isaac. And the whole rest of Genesis is tracing this family tree to Abraham was born Isaac. To Isaac Jacob and to Jacob the 12th and every time a son was born the question was the same is this the son is this the son but it never was and so they went down to Egypt in 430 years they were in Egypt and it grew into a vast multitude clearly God was right to name Abram Abraham and Sarai Sarah it turned into a vast multitude who are now in bondage in Egypt And so they cry out, God raises up Moses and he sends Moses. You know what he says to Moses? He says, Go tell Pharaoh that Israel is my son. Let my son go that he may worship me. And that's the rest of the Old Testament. We're tracing out the line of the son. And the line narrows when we get to David. And he says to David, I'm going to give you a son in 2 Samuel 7. But every time a son was born, they held their breath Is this the son? But it never was. It never was. So that's why we read from earlier in Hosea chapter 11. Did you hear the language? What did he say in Hosea Hosea, as we read? This, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the problem was the passage went on immediately to say, is it the more I called, the more he turned into idolatry. There was no son. As a matter of fact, the entire Old Testament is an unfinished symphony. It's an unfinished story. It begins as a story that you're anticipating the son who never comes. The book ends, and there's no ending. There's no nothing. It's silent. You're meant to end and say, this isn't over. And that's why when you turn the page into Matthew chapter 1, the first readers, that would have been a thunderclap to them because it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham. Oh, the sun. Look, it's better. Because then Joseph gets a dream. It's time to go down to Egypt because Herod's looking to kill you. So he goes down to Egypt, and when Herod dies, he gets another dream. It's time to go back up to Nazareth. And Matthew says, This was to fulfill the words of Hosea the prophet. Out of Egypt, I've called my son. And then in chapter 3, it is baptism. Jesus is brought out of the water and the heavens were opened. The Spirit descended like a dove and rested upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Now do you see why Paul starts with Son? Because the entire story that began back in the garden was brought to a head in Jesus. And Paul says, friend, if you're led by the Spirit, you receive that same inheritance. That you two are a son. Oh, male and female makes no difference. You're all children of God now, but you have sonship. And this actually theme runs all the way through Revelation 21:7, where we read: The one who conquers, one who perseveres, will have this heritage that I will be his God, and he will be my son. See, we've spent these weeks thinking about the Holy Spirit, and in Romans 8, we get the foundation. And we get the most precious truths of what the Spirit does. He brings spiritually dead people alive and he unites us to Christ. And He adopts us into God's family. He makes us heirs, sons of God. Because only a son in the ancient world could receive an inheritance. So we are all sons of God. But men don't get too excited because one day uh, it says we're also going to be the bride of Christ. So it's not a gender thing. The issue is the imagery of what it brings that we are inheritors of the promised. So, if you're here, and maybe you're not a Christian, I get Romans 8 is the deepest waters in the Bible, really. So there might be a um, hundred questions you have. I hope you're writing those down. We'd love to talk with you further. But there's two things that just are so foundational that you have to understand. So hope, I hope you grab onto these two things and then ask questions. First, there's a deep internal consistency in the Bible storyline. I hope you see just a taste of that in tracing out The son theme as it goes through scripture and it all comes to a head in jesus the true son and the second thing i hope that you're struck by is that jesus the son sends the spirit to make all that is the son's ours by uniting us to him and by adopting us into god's family see as we've seen the holy spirit applies redemption to god's people so i hope that you're understanding those things. And you have more questions, you can grab me. I'll be in the hall afterwards. would love to talk to you further. So you've seen the flow of how Romans chapter 8 is beginning, what the Spirit's work is. His person, he makes Jesus known to us, unites us to him, adopts us into his family. But there's a question of how. As we read in the Catechism, God has to be just. So how does this come about? And I believe the answer is found in Paul's use of the word Abba. See, I think that Paul either had Mark's gospel or he may have had the at least the tradition of Mark's gospel already because there's only one place where Jesus is, says, Abba, Father. And it is that passage I said earlier, Mark 14, 36. And the context of that passage is fascinating because it's in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. You see, the reason the Spirit is able to adopt us, the reason the Spirit is able to enable us to cry out, Abba, Father, and to pray to Abba, Father, is because when Jesus prayed it, his prayer was denied so that your prayer could be heard. See, Jesus submitted to the Father's will because he knew we never would or could. Jesus, the true son, received not an inheritance as a son, not the heir. He received the condemnation of a usurper so that we could be made sons and heirs. See, when we come to truly see this, we will long to suffer with him. We will long to endure because the son has died to make us sons. We will long to put to death the deeds of the body because we will see how much greater it is to be co-heirs with Christ. So, church, are you led by the Spirit in putting to death the deeds of the flesh? Are you stumbling towards Jesus and finding his grace more powerful and more real even in times of suffering and trial? If so, then the Holy Spirit is testifying with your spirit that you are sons and that you can cry out, Abba, Father. And the reality of this suffering will lead to wonderful glory. There's a great hymn by Isaac Watts which captures and ties these themes together. Hear these words. Behold the amazing gift of love the Father hath bestowed on us, the sinful sons of men, to call us sons of God. Concealed as yet this honor lies By this dark world unknown, a world that knew not when he came, even God's eternal Son. High is the rank we now possess, but higher we shall rise, though what we shall hereafter be is hid from mortal eyes. Our souls, we know when he appears, shall bear his image bright, for all his glory, full disclosed, shall open to our sight. A hope so great and so divine, may trials well endure and purify our souls from sin as Christ himself is pure. Would you pray with me?